Well, I have the privilege this morning of introducing you to a very good friend of mine, a man by the name of Isaiah. Isaiah's name means that Yahweh is salvation, and he is one of what is known as the major prophets of the Old Testament. So although I've never met him uh, in person, although it's cool to think that we will someday, right? Uh, He's become one of my best friends because over the course of his 66 chapters of prophecy, Isaiah's book basically becomes like a mini Bible. Every major theme, every major moment is either recorded as history or foretold from the future in the book of Isaiah. And he's speaking into a time where God's people need a warning. And yet you'll notice as you go through this book that he is not only warning, but also wooing the people back to God. And often when we hear of someone being called a prophet, right, we think that a prophet is someone who can tell the future. But that's not exactly it. In fact, the New Testament reveals to us that the prophets who foretold all these things about Jesus and about the future wish they could have understood it. (laughs) So there's a lot of what Isaiah would have spoken or written that even Isaiah probably didn't understand. Actually, what's happening is that God knows the future. And in the present, God wants to give his people a message about the future for a specific reason. And that is often that God, through the prophets, this is kind of the purpose of prophecy as we talk about it this morning, is making an accusation against his people because they have rebelled against him for the purpose of repentance which is a word that means to physically turn around and go the other direction. So if God has laid out the course for his people and they have rebelled against him, he brings the accusation, here is how you have rebelled, here is how you have rebelled, so that his desire is for them to turn around. So that's what prophecy is. That's what the prophets are doing as they speak God's word back to his people. And for all of the warning that Isaiah brings, one of the key moments of wooing, one of the key verses for the entire book actually doesn't come until chapter 40 when God says this to his people. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. So you're going to hear fire and brimstone. You're going to hear judgment not only on Judah and Israel and the nations around them, but God keeps coming back to this idea that his goal is to bring comfort. And so for this series, to help us kind of keep track of that, we have kind of our quilt, our comforter here, with different icons, different images that represent prophecies, symbols, and significant moments throughout the book of Isaiah that we're going to look at between now and Christmas that point to who Jesus is and what Jesus was going to do. And so as you think about this, one of the things that's kind of amazing about this book is how long it is. In fact, in 1947, they discovered what is known as the Great Isaiah Scroll. And you can see a picture of it here. And if you, if you think this is fun, I actually pulled this from Wikimedia. So, like, you can get this picture, and you can zoom all the way in on, like, every verse and every line. In fact, I highlighted one, if you can see it in the top right corner, a little yellow box right there. I'm going to tell you what it is later. <laughs> but for now, look at how long this is, because when you roll the scroll out, it is actually 24 feet long of prophecy. Now, This tape measure is 25 feet. So let's see just how much prophecy that really is that Isaiah is speaking to the people. Because you and I would be lucky if we could do like a sentence of prophecy. Like try to predict who's going to win the Super Bowl, for example. There's only five or six choices, but you still don't really know. Let alone 24 feet. 
hey, we made it to 14. That means we've got 10 more feet of prophecy coming. Now think about that. Because in the days after the life of Jesus, when Jesus had lived and died, done miracles on the earth, people looked at the book of Isaiah and said, that can't have actually been written before Jesus. Because, you know, unlike something like Nostradamus, where you throw out like 10 million prophecies and you keep them all vague so that it sort of seems like, hey, I think that one kind of came true. How did he know the future? I mean, never mind the other 99% that are completely wrong, right? With Isaiah, it is so laser pinpoint specific and accurate that after the life of Jesus, they said that must have been written after Jesus, or at least they changed it after Jesus. Tweak a word here, add a line there, cut a paragraph, put a new one in to try to get it to look like Isaiah had foretold Jesus coming. Which is why you're looking at this picture and part of why this is so significant. Because this is the complete book of Isaiah found in the Qumran community, in the Qumran scrolls, 100 to 300 years before Jesus was born. It's actually the oldest complete copy we have of Isaiah. And here's why that is significant. Because look at this. Every line, every page, every word, honestly, even some of the chapter breaks that we have in our modern Bible show up on this scroll. Which means that every single promise and prophecy that was made about Jesus Christ was not tweaked later to try to get it to fit. Isaiah really knew that God wanted us to be sure of what his plan was. Because while this was written a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, all of this was actually spoken 700 years earlier. So this is our oldest copy, but Isaiah was about 700 years before Christ. 2,700 years before you and I are exploring his book today. And so we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1, to start to get a sense of exactly what it is that Isaiah is speaking to us. Because he says, this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Which a lot of times when I'm reading the prophets, it's that bit right there that is just like whoosh. Kind of skip past it. But if you remember, over the last few months, before Song of Solomon, we did Second Kings. And some of these names actually sound familiar. So we start to get this context. In fact, you remember, we actually met Isaiah in that book. So I'll just pick a couple here. Ahaz was actually one of the worst kings. One of those guys that was so evil, he was actually sacrificing his own children to a false god. Hezekiah was actually one of the best but even he made some critical errors that reminded us we were waiting for a better king. And so Isaiah does about 40 years of ministry in the time where Israel and Judah are filled with evil kings, leading the people to do evil things. Now imagine getting to be the guy that stands up and says, God doesn't like this. <laughs> took a lot of courage for him to speak into this moment in history and to tell them that fire of judgment was coming. Because one of the messages of the prophets is that holy fire either purges or purifies. In some sense, you could say that it does both because the fire of judgment is doing more than just punishing. Right? The idea is that, that God will present both literally and as a symbol that he wants to purge the evil out of the land of Israel, out of the land of Judah, out of the people so that it will be purified, that what's left is only good. 
And the way that gets picked up for us is this idea that if God has to deal with the evil, if I cling to my evil, then I end up getting burned with it. But remember, he's warning and wooing. God is hoping that what he can do is remove the evil, deal with that, and now I have been purified too. That's what he's trying to present to his people in this book. And so in verse 2, he continues by kind of setting up this courtroom scenario. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. All right, so he's calling all of heaven and earth as his witnesses. And here's the accusation. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. He's saying they don't think this through. Essentially, he just said, my people are dumber than a donkey. All right, even a donkey knows where it lives, and my own people don't realize I'm trying to nourish them. He's speaking like a father, and you hear that heart, the pain in God's heart, that after all of this nourishment, all of this goodness, they rebelled against him anyway. And so it goes in verse 4 to say, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked him to anger, the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned away backward. And that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is significant in this book. Isaiah uses that phrase more the entire rest of the Old Testament combined. He's going to attach it not only to God, but to the Messiah, to the Savior, who is the Holy One of Israel. It's just like we sang this morning, holy, 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 there is none beside thee. The idea of holiness captures that idea of separation. Right? That God is different than everything else. He is the only one who is always good, always right, always pure, always righteous. So part of what you have to recognize in that phrase it's not just another one of those casual things like, oh yeah, God of Israel got it. No, he's saying, this is not just God who's out there somewhere. God, if you are real, well, don't we all find our own way to God? He's saying, no, this is a specific God. This is the one, the only, the Holy One of Israel. It is he who wants to invite you into this conversation. He who wants to warn and turn you back to his love, his forgiveness, and his grace. And so really the first encouragement this passage is giving us, call it a warning, call it a wooing, whatever it might feel like for your heart, hear the accusation and the heart behind it. I think that's an interesting way to think about this because if you remember a guy named C.S. Lewis who has become one of the kind of greatest people defending the Christian faith, but when he was not a Christ follower and he was trying to explore the reality of God, They've actually pulled together this book called God in the Dock, which was a, a collection of essays of his because he liked this metaphor that we have put God in the dock. We've put God on the witness stand. And what Lewis noticed as he was exploring God is that all through human history, it's always phrased as though God has us on the witness stand, right? That God is saying, here are the accusations against you, O my people, here are the things you realize you need to realize you've done wrong that are out of track with my moral standard. But Lewis noticed how moral man had kind of, uh, modern man had kind of flipped that around and said, well, I'm not sure I like this God very much. In fact, if he is real, prove it to me, God. Where's my miracle? And if he is good, then why did this happen to my wife? 
C.S. Lewis wrote an entire book about why did this happen to my wife. He wondered why would that happen to my friends during the war. Lewis had seen real pain and he realized that he was approaching God as if God needed to explain himself. As if God needed to make a case for himself and defend himself against Lewis's accusations. But the Bible has that completely flipped around. That it is we who are in the weak position and God who is trying to rescue us from it. Now it might sound kind of strange to put God on trial. But doing this research, I know you love when I do this research for you. I actually found real places where people tried to drag God into court. So I made a note of a couple of these here. One of them was a woman named Betty Penrose. And Betty bought a house on some property, but that property that was owned by a landowner who had a lot of property. Now, I don't know what that guy's deal was, but he tried to sign the deed of his property over to God. I think he was trying to like avoid taxes or something because God wasn't a resident of that neighborhood. Well, she lives on the property that supposedly has been signed over to God, and then God let a lightning bolt hit her house. So she went to court to sue God for negligence. Well, you can imagine that probably didn't go very well, but how do you, what do you do? I mean, it's kind of like that Santa Claus thing in Miracle on 34th Street, right? If you're the judge, you just say, well, God's not real. Get out of here. And then everybody's mad at you. So this is what he figured out. They actually threw out the case because since God was not able to physically take possession of the land, the deed was invalid and therefore her claim was invalid. Okay, good. I got away with one there, right? Oh, even better, there was a guy named uh, Pavo M. I don't know what his last name was, but Pavo was serving 20 years in prison. So he sued the Romanian church as a representative of God because the Romanian church had baptized him. And he believed that baptism was a binding contract that he is supposed to be free from sin for the rest of his life. As he's doing 20 years in jail for murder. So he actually took them to court on behalf of God to accuse God of allowing him to commit murder. As if this was God's problem. Well, same thing. They figured out a way to throw this out, which was to say that since God was neither a resident of Romania nor a uh, company doing business in Romania, he could not be held accountable under Romanian law, and they dismissed it from the court. Whew. God got away with one there. And we can kind of laugh at the audacity of people who would actually drag God to court, And yet when I think about my own life, aren't there some of those places where I feel like this is God's fault and he needs to explain himself? And sometimes it's those painful places where it's like, God, how could you let this happen? Other times it is issues of morality. I don't like what God says is right and wrong. I mean, that's what the people of Israel and Judah were dealing with as they're worshiping false gods, worshiping false idols, sacrificing things to these pieces of wood and metal. We think like, ha! Ancient man sure was stupid. But what was behind that is that they didn't like what God said was right and wrong. They wanted to serve the gods of sexuality. They wanted to serve the gods of money. They wanted to serve the gods that the cultures around them told them would be basically more fun. Well, don't we do that sometimes? Does the Bible really say that? Because I don't know. I mean, it's 2023. And we flip this and we put God on trial and say, explain yourself. Why do you think you can get away with that, God? Well, Isaiah wants to flip it back because he knows we are going to miss out on the comforter. We're going to miss out on the hope. We're going to miss out on the goodness if we keep trying to embrace things as if God is the one on trial. And so the way he flips that, he comes back to them and says, 
Verse 5, this is where the fire starts to show up. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. Like, guys, every time you rebel against God, you lose and it burns. Why would you keep doing this? Your whole head is sick. The whole heart faints from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, just wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They've not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth and a vineyard, as a hut and a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. See, one of their biggest mistakes was that instead of trusting God, they were trusting the kingdoms, the kings, and the cultures around them. And he's saying, and now the city is burned and those strangers you trusted instead of me have overthrown you. And just when it starts to look the hottest and the darkest, there's this little hint of the hope that starts to come through in verse 9. When the people point out, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, man, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. And those were two cities that because they went completely against God's moral standard had been wiped off the face of the earth. Like that is one of those fire and brimstone moments. And if you go back and read that story, there's even a moment where God's servant is asking him like, hey, even if there's just like a couple good people there, like wouldn't you spare the city? And God says, honestly, I would. But there aren't. That they chose rebellion to the end and they went down with their sin. And so these people now in Isaiah's day are saying, whew, we could end up like that. But look at how Isaiah picks on him in verse 10. They just finished saying, hey, at least he left us a remnant because we could have been like that. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So right after they say, man, I mean, hey, like at least we're not Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He says, you're about to be. All right, this is one of the things you catch from the prophets and especially from Isaiah. He wants to give them hope, but he never wants to give them false hope. He wants to give them comfort, but he never wants to give them false comfort. He has to speak truth into the situation that they are in if they are really going to recognize how good and gracious God is. So now God goes on to speak to the people here. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. This is a little unusual because... God has actually asked them to do those instructions. Right? These are things that he told them about in their law. So it gets a little confusing because he says, not do it better. He says, I've had enough of that. I don't delight in that. Look how he goes on in verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? To trample my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies... I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. You're, when you spread out your hands, back that up, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. So you notice that question he asks in verse 12. Who's required this from your hand? That might be confusing because God, didn't you require this? Because everything he describes here is stuff that he's told them to do. Feasts he wants them to celebrate, sacrifices he wants them to make. But all of that was designed 
symbolically to draw them into relationship with him. And what he's saying is you're doing all the ritual, but you don't know me. In fact, look at that central statement right there. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Oh, yeah, you trample my courts. Like you, got, oh, you come to temple every week. That is awesome. And you leave footprints in the dirt. I can tell hundreds and thousands of people have been in the temple this week because of the way it's been trampled down. But what would you bring with you? Your iniquity? Is that really what you think I want? That nothing has changed in your life? Nothing has changed in your attitude toward me? Uh, you, you came to temple, though. Like, isn't that, isn't that what God wants? He wanted me to, like, go to church, I thought. So this can be confusing for us, too. Because all of those are good things, and yet God says, I'm sick of it. And so in verse 15, he tells them that when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear, for your hands are full of blood. Guys, that is probably one of the scariest things that you can read in the entire Bible. If God says, hey, when you try to talk to me, I'm not listening. And you've got to realize that what he's telling them here, he's not saying, oh, Christ follower who slipped up today because you're still struggling just like Romans 7 where Paul did. I'm done with you. And that's not what he's saying. Right? This is a people who are so far gone. They are so rebellious. They are so like glossed over with their religious activity that they show up in the midst of sin that they're bringing in with them that they don't even care about, that they're unwilling to change, and then saying, oh, but by the way, God, um, if I give you this cow, how about you give me some rain for my crops? I would love to see a, a greater profit over the next quarter. Oh, and also my brother-in-law's not feeling too good if you could take care of that. Thank you so much. They trample the courts. They ask him for favors. There's no relationship and there's no heart change. And so really, I think kind of the encouragement that Isaiah is trying to give them here is don't trade obedience for ritual. There's kind of a funny thing about, I think just human beings, because a lot of how we relate to other people is transactional. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I do this for you, you do that for me, my company does this for you, your company does that for me. Like that's normal, right? And so sometimes we paint that into our relationship with God. But this is one of the things that differentiates Christianity from all of the other major world religions. And even the religions that were around Israel and Judah at the time, where it's like, Every God has to be constantly appeased because every God is selfish. They only care about themselves. They do not care about you, the people. But maybe if you burn enough of your children or kill enough of your cattle, I'll think that's funny and send you some rain. Like, who wants to serve that God? And yet we can have that kind of mindset that there may be certain things I can do that if I do them right or often enough or well enough, I can manipulate God into what I want him to do. And so one, one classic example of this, a friend of mine was kind of telling me about his spiritual journey. And he was raised in a spiritual household. You know, he was raised going to church, but he would say there wasn't anything spiritual about his life. And so he kind of learned at an early age, there are things God says don't do, and there are things God says to do. But he kind of liked a lot of the things that God said don't do. So as he described it, he realized one of his choices was stop doing that, start doing this, or did you know that if you do all of this stuff, but then you tell God you're sorry, then it's okay. <laughs> so somehow he internalized, like, then I can live my life that way. Like, I'll kind of live however I want from Monday to Saturday, as long as then I show up at church and tell God I was sorry. Then I'm good for another week. So, like, I know we all live that way a little bit sometimes, but to hear him say, like, I actually believe that. I was living that out. 
And so by the time he got to like his college years and the party life that he was living, and he was like, I was entirely living for my desires, for what I wanted, for whatever made the most sense to me. And then I would just tell God I was sorry because I knew I probably wasn't supposed to be. Well, now he would look back and tell you, you know what was missing there? I definitely didn't want to obey. That sounded like God's buzzkill on my life. Obey. That means I'm going to have to do all the lame stuff and skip all the fun stuff. He said what was missing was that he didn't actually know God. And that once he got to know Christ as his forgiver and as the leader of his life, it totally flip-flopped the way he thought about religion and ritual. Instead of thinking, God should be happy because there's a lot of people that don't even go to church and I go at least like a couple times a month or year or whatever. Hey, at least I say sorry, God, once in a while. Right? But there was no relationship there. He said what changed for him was now that he was following Christ, now that he realized his entire life was based on how much God loved him, now he starts to try to love other people and he realizes all these places God asks him to obey are because they're for his own good. And so if you're a parent, like this is easy to think about. Like with my kids, I've realized there are some places I'm calling them to obedience and it's actually just my personal preference for like, when the shoes should be put away or why cups with lids shouldn't be left on this particular counter and I thought I told you to obey. And then there's other things that get mixed into that like don't lie. You know, don't disrespect your parents. And it can become a little fuzzy for my kids. Like which one of these is like really a moral issue or just dad's being a little capricious? Well, with God, it is never that way. With God, the obedience that he asks us for, the commands that he gives us are always right and they are always for our good and there have been times in my life where I realize like I've been over here doing my own thing like whatever that is and obedience is going to mean that it's going to hurt a little bit to admit that to somebody else and have to apologize have to fix something or make something right and there's like this barrier that's like don't do it man don't do it man <laughs> when you step into obedience I'm telling you, it is always worth it. It may be hard. There may still be some scars that itch. But then there are these other things that, that are good things that God's asking you to do. And it feels like, man, I don't know if I can do that. That's going to take a sacrifice or maybe I'm not brave enough or whatever it is. But if you ask him through Christ for his spirit's power to obey him, you will find, I'm telling you, ask, ask anybody who's made one of those tough decisions. Like sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's tough. It's always good. It is always for your best. And he's telling his people in Isaiah chapter 1, if you would only like understand this, how it would change your relationship with me, your relationship with the people around you, how he would heal the land and heal the culture. If you would stop just trying to play around with this ritual and actually learn what it looks like to live the way God has designed you to live. That's why in verses 16 and 17 he says, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And you notice here I highlighted a few of these verbs. There's essentially three different sets of three verbs. So three is one of those, it's, it's a poetic tool, but it's also symbolic in the Bible of a sense of completion. You know, there's some of these numbers like three, like seven. So by giving us three sets of three, Isaiah is trying to paint a picture of what the obedient life looks like. And so when he says, wash yourself, make yourselves clean, that's not like in the New Testament sense of salvation. He just means very practically. The verse right before this, he said, your hands are covered in blood. So don't look at your hands 
and say, and that's kind of gross. And then just go like eat, eat a sandwich with those hands. Wash your hands. <laughs> He's saying, well, you notice those things in your life. When God points that out to you, don't say, yeah, I get, well, I'll get bloody sometimes. No, come and clean up. Grab the soap. Put that stuff away from you. I think that's one of the things that we can unintentionally miss kind of in our modern Christianity because there is such a legalistic background for some of us that we desperately need to hear the message that my good deeds do not save me. They don't. In fact, I love how Chad describes sometimes that my bad deeds are worse than I think. And my good deeds are not as good as I think. Can't even tell you how many. They're often probably selfishly motivated in some way. And if you spend your whole life trying to think that you will achieve God's standard by working it out yourself, by doing enough good deeds or often enough or big enough or whatever that hopefully God will accept you, it doesn't work. The Bible is very clear. We are saved by grace. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast and be like, because I did so much good things, no wonder he saved me. It's a gift. But don't stop there. Too often we stop right there and then think, well, hey, I'm forgiven past, present, and future. And unintentionally, we just sit right in that spot and we don't grow. And yet you'll notice every book of this, on these pages, including Isaiah, it's like, don't stop there. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Actually look at those evil things and say, what will it take to put it away? It starts by admitting it's evil, Right? I'm still watching that thing. I'm still clicking that thing. I'm still saying that thing. I'm still treating that person that way. And I know it's probably not good, but no, if you can say that, if you realize that, if you don't want Jesus to overhear you doing that, hey, put it away. Don't just like disconnect that from Sunday I walk in and trample horizon and then I go back out and do whatever like God didn't come with me. God's saying put it away, but then learn to do good. Turn that corner and watch how blessed life is when you take the same energy, you literally save time you are wasting on that stuff and start to seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. I mean, think about how practical that is. He's telling them, actually look around your community. Who do you know that might be this kind of person? And how can you love them the way I've loved you? It's a picture of what it looks like to spread God's love and his mercy to others. But it starts with putting away that evil and washing themselves. And so as you think about this, as I think about this, you think about what are those points in your life where you realize, like he described how they had turned away backward. All right, like maybe I took a step forward, I said, yeah, I want to know more about this Jesus thing. Maybe I even took that step forward and said, I believe in Jesus and I trust him as my forgiver. But lately, I've been kind of turning away backward. And sometimes you hear people use the, the phrase backsliding. Like, I know where I should be, but for some reason, I'm, I'm doing this move. And, oh, whoops, there's a, I don't want to fire, and I don't, I don't know if I like that too much. Maybe if I come behind it, then God won't see me. But I, but I will, uh, Lord. I, I was at church this weekend, though. You saw me, right? Okay. Okay, now don't look at me again. <laughs> what do you do? When you realize, maybe even as you're listening to me right now, there's something in your life that God wants you to put away. That you've turned away backwards in that lust. You've turned away backwards in that cruelty. You've turned away backwards in that gossip. Lying or just sneaking a little something under the table. What do you do? What do you do?
You read verse 18. To these people who have slidden as far back as they can possibly go, he says, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Because no matter what you could think of in your present or your past, the thing that you regret the most, the thing that you are most embarrassed of, the thing that like you hope I can't look into your eyes and read your mind, and I hope you can't look into my eyes and read mine. The thing that, that any of us could say that would shock everybody else in the room to, to have it turn out that you're a sinner too. That thing is like scarlet. It's like crimson. And the Hebrew language that is used here is that this is not just like juice you wash off your hands. This is like a tattoo stained onto your very soul. Impossible to remove. For you. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. God is saying to one of the most evil moments in his people's history, even though it is like scarlet, even though you have stained to the core like crimson, it is that bad, it is that ugly, it is that sinful, and it is in you. But because of God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, through the comforter that Isaiah is painting the picture of, from his virgin birth to his death on the cross. If you have trusted Christ as your forgiver and your savior, you are already white as snow. It's gone. That is the power and the grace and the forgiveness of the Holy One of Israel. In fact, you remember I showed you that little yellow box all the way up in the corner of this scroll. Isaiah has a lot more to say. But that little yellow box is this verse. Come, let us reason together. And I show you this zoomed in because I want you to realize that even if you don't know Hebrew, like it took me a while to find this because I, I could kind of fight my way through some Hebrew, but I had to line it up with, like, with my Hebrew Bible and look back and forth until I could find this verse. And man, the feeling when you realize, there it is. I am not making this up. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not making this up. When Neil stood out here before and sang that song that Jesus paid it all, he is not making it up. When it says that we could be white as snow, that was not written in 1920-whatever. That was written 2,700 years ago. And without even knowing Hebrew, you could copy it letter for letter and word for word because 2,700 years before you are hearing this this morning, God wanted to make sure that you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And so here's how I want us to be encouraged by Isaiah this morning. Verses 19 and 20, he basically gives them a choice now. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. So if your choices are devoured by the sword, or come, let us reason together. 
And the reasoning is not, you do this, you do this, you do that. It's just, you come to me, I will make you white as snow. That is pretty reasonable. And so I think the takeaway for us today is to reason through Isaiah 1, 16 to 18, with God. Just those verses about washing ourselves, putting away the evil, doing good, and reasoning with him. And so I think that if you take this this week and spend some time talking to God about these three questions, and let's start at the bottom, because I didn't even realize this until this morning, but that comes right out of the text. Where do you want to learn to do good? That because of God's love, because of God's forgiveness, he starts to say things like, all right, guess what I got planned for today? And you get to enjoy that with him. And so literally, uh, next Sunday morning, October 1st, we're having a serving open house, which is completely designed for you to just come and chat with a couple of our leaders, with John Kirby, and start to discover where might God have in mind for you to do some good around Horizon, around our community. And so if that's something that you're thinking right now, hey, I'd love to get plugged in. I would love to find a way to honor God, to love others. Hey, come and check out the serving open house next week. Maybe another way for you to learn that kind of thing is to jump into a group. We have men's groups and women's groups that are tracking with this Isaiah series. Uh, Honest to God for Women just started this past week. You can still jump in on that. Also, starting next Sunday, Sunday night and Monday morning, is Authentic Manhood for Guys. A place where we are literally learning to good, learning to do good at work and at home. So that's that bottom question. Let's go up to the next question. I think this one kind of makes sense now. Because it's not just going to be our ritual of doing good and like, hey, I came to authentic manhood. God, isn't that good enough? Talk to God about where does he want you to put something away and ask him for the courage to help you do it. Because then it all comes back to that first question. How has he made you whiter than snow? Where can you reflect on his grace and give him thanks for being the God who washes you clean? For being the comforter who paid it all? And so I'd like to just pray for you that way right now. And then I've, asked, I've actually uh, asked Neil if he would come back out so we could just sing that chorus together again and sing Isaiah right back to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just, for my own heart and for these hearts here, thank you that though my sins were like scarlet, you have made them as white as snow. Thank you, Jesus, that you have paid it all. Truly, we owe everything to you. Lord, we love you, and I pray that if there's anyone here who who knows that and has forgotten, that you would remind them today of your cleansing and how much you love them and that they are white as snow in you. And Lord, if there's anybody who hasn't embraced that yet, that this might be a moment that they see for the first time the promises that you want to make, that you paid it all for each one of us, and you've been promising us that for thousands of years. Lord, we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.